Well, hey, guys, thanks for being here. We are really glad that you all have uh, decided to take some time away and come and be with us this weekend as we talk about this parenting thing. And uh, as Kyle said, you know, honestly, none of us are qualified to talk about this. Um, I have one of my kids here with us tonight. You'll see him a little bit later. But um, I am far from a perfect parent. There is only one perfect father, and he is uh, not here speaking this weekend. But we are praying that he will be physically present in uh, myself and in others as we seek to try and um, serve one another by just talking about things that the Bible says about parenting. We're getting all set up up here for you. What we're, our theme is as we go through our weekend is, is simply this. Um, it has to do with the topic of being overwhelmed. And all of us are overwhelmed when it comes to giving, uh, having been given the incredible responsibility of raising kids. There's probably no greater privilege that we're given and probably no greater responsibility. And one that I want to spend some time tonight and kind of the topic that I want to speak on is if you're not already overwhelmed, then you should be. And so what I want to do tonight is remind you of what is at stake. And then we're going to try and unpack throughout the rest of our time together these next 24 hours what to do because we realize what's at stake. Now, you really probably understand that there's something pretty significant going on or you wouldn't be here. You've already made a great sacrifice to get here and to come and uh, get child care for your kiddos. But um, nonetheless, I'm going to try and up the ante a little bit and let you know what exactly is going on right here for us. Just to start out, we thought, while well, these guys were setting some of this up, we just kind of read through a, a fun little deal. You know you're uh, ready to have kids when you've passed this test. If you'll just turn that little tab number one. Number one, the mess test. Here's what you got to do. If you're trying to figure out if you're ready to have kids or not, you, you smear peanut butter on the soap and curtains, you place a fish stick behind the couch, and you leave it there all summer. If that freaks you out, you're not ready to have kids. There's the toy test. This is a good one. You obtain a 55-gallon box of Legos. If Legos aren't available, you can substitute roofing tax. <laughs> Have a friend spread them all over the house, put on a blindfold, try to walk to the bathroom or kitchen. Do not scream, because that could wake up one of your precious little children. Grocery store test. Buy one or two small animals. Goats are the best. And take them with you as you shop at the grocery store. Always keep them in sight and pay for anything they eat or damage. Dressing test. Obtain one large, unhappy, live octopus. Stuff into a small net bag, making sure that all arms stay inside. Feeding test. This is a good one. Obtain a large plastic milk jug. Fill halfway with water. Suspend from the ceiling with a stout cord. Start the jug swinging. Try to insert spoonfuls of soggy cereal into the mouth of the jug while pretending to be an airplane. Now dump the rest of the contents of the jug on the floor. If you're okay with that, you're ready for kids. Night test. Prepare by obtaining a small cloth bag and fill it with an 8-12 pound bag of sand. Soak it thoroughly in water at 8 p.m. Begin to waltz and hum with the bag until 9 p.m. Lay down your bag and set your alarm for 10 p.m. Get up, pick up your bag, and sing every song you've ever heard of. Make up about a dozen more and sing these until 4 a.m. Set the alarm for 5, get up and make breakfast, keep this up for 5 years, and look happy. <laughs> All right, it gets better. If you're a woman, here's what you need to do. Obtain a large beanbag chair and attach it to the front of your clothes. Leave it there for nine months. Now remove ten of the beans. <laughs> That's good. <clears throat> Sweetie, you took out twelve, honestly. So. Physical test. Go to the nearest drugstore, Ben. Set your wallet on the counter. 
ask the clerk to help himself. Now proceed to the nearest food store. Go to the head office and arrange for your paycheck. Be directly deposited there. Purchase a newspaper, go home and read it, because it'll be the last time you get to do that. Finally, find a couple who has a small child. Lecture them on how they can improve their discipline, patience, tolerance, toilet training, and child table manners. Suggest many ways they can improve. Emphasize them that they should never allow their child to run wild. Enjoy this experience, because it'll be the last time you'll ever have all the answers. Amen? Yeah, well, we are all here for the same reason. And it's not to get the silver bullet, but we are here just to refocus, reconnect, recommit, re-alert ourselves to what's going on. We've got a ton of content tonight. Paul told me, he said, Todd, you gave me 160 slides. He goes, I've got to move it every 30 seconds, whether you're ready for me to move it or not, or we'll be here to midnight. Well, we're not going to go through all of them, but uh, I want you to know that there is just a multitude of stuff that we could do as we're trying to establish the fact that this is a big deal. And that's really what I want you to see. So here we go. If you've got a Bible, you can just flip through uh, 1 Kings with me real quickly. And uh, I'll give you your first few blanks as we follow through. What you sow as a parent, as a leader, as a shepherd, as an influencer over those that God gives you responsibility for, what you sow as a leader is going to reap far greater consequences than you could ever imagine. Now that is true of both the good and the bad. You have an opportunity as a parent to influence tomorrow like nothing else you'll ever be given the opportunity to use to impact tomorrow. As a parent, this is your opportunity to influence tomorrow. It's also your greatest opportunity to bring joy and peace to somebody today by your leadership. But if you fail in your leadership, the consequences of that can be more horrific than anything else that you do because God is trusting you with the privilege of shaping eternal humanity made in the image of God. And He expects you to take that task very seriously. And in fact, if you would look at 1 Kings, if you've got your Bible, just turn to uh, chapter 12 in 1 Kings. And we're not going to have time to go through uh, all of these, but there is over 25 different times that one man's book appears in 1 Kings. It's not David, it's not Solomon, and it's not repeated in a positive way. It's a guy by the name of Jeroboam. Now, Jeroboam was an opportunist. Jeroboam is the guy that when Solomon's son, who was the heir to the Davidic throne, uh, became abusive and uh, basically a little obsessive in his taxation and the way that he was leading his people, Jeroboam saw a vulnerability in his kingship. And so Jeroboam moved and he basically curried favor with 10 of the 12 tribes that made up Israel at the time. And those 10 tribes became what was known from 1 Kings 12 forward as Israel because there was more of them than the two that stayed behind underneath the Davidic leader that God had said that there would be somebody that would reign on the throne of David forever over his people Israel. That gentleman's name was Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, as I said, was very abusive. He didn't listen to his counselors. And he, he said, if my father taxed him a little bit, I'll tax him a lot. I'll show them what it looks like in his insecurity to establish leadership and power over them. And so Jeroboam became a guy that took ten of those tribes and said, hey, I'll be your king. And I won't tax you as heavily and follow me. And he had a lust for power. Now, one of the things that he realized he needed to do, because these people were trained to go to one place to worship. They were called to go down to Jerusalem and worship God as he had revealed himself to be worshipped by them. But he thought to himself, and if you look in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 27, it says this. 
if this people goes up, and the reason they're going from the north down to the south, and he says up, is because the topography of the land is such that when you walk to Jerusalem, you move uphill. He says, this people go up to sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to the Lord. And they'll realize that they're wrong for following me. Even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they will kill me. And they will return to Rehoboam, who is the king of Judah. So verse 28 says, So the king consulted, and he made two golden calves. And it says he set one in Bethel, and another one in Dan. And a little bit later in chapter 12, it talks about how he uh, established a new national festival. God said that on the first day of the year, he would have a, a celebration called Passover. And uh, Jeroboam was going to say, no, we're not going to do Passover anymore. So he invented his own festival. He invented his own religion. He named his own priests. He didn't name the priests in the tribe of Levi, as God said that he should. And Jeroboam basically said, look, it's all about me. It's all about my power. It's all about what will make me comfortable and famous. And so the heck with acknowledging God for who he is. The heck with worshiping God the way God wants to be worshipped. And the heck with, with calling people to follow him the way that God calls people to follow him. It's all about me. And Jeroboam introduced idolatry and false worship and self-love into this nation that God had called out of every other nation that was living like that to be different, to be a minister to other nations. Jeroboam said, no, we're going to be just like everybody else as long as I can be king. Now, here's what you need to know about what basically happens in the history of the nation of Israel from that time forward. There are 10 tribes in the north. They become Israel. The two tribes in the south are called Judah. There were 19 kings that lived in the north. There were 20 kings in the south. There was never a single one of the 19 kings in the north that ever sought God and followed after him. Of the 20 that were in the south, eight did. And then God brought them to a time of great national discipline. After he, in 722 B.C., brought Assyria to swoop down and and take Israel into judgment, he thought that that would maybe keep the remnant that was there, the folks that were underneath uh, the, the leadership of the Davidic king in Judah, maybe they would come back to their senses and they would begin to worship God and God would grow his nation back through them. But Judah didn't do that. Judah continued to give itself over to the same idolatry that its brother Israel had done. And so God sent the whole nation into bondage as they were captured and taken away by the people in Babylon. But what repeats itself all through 1 Kings is this little phrase. The phrase is simply this. This king, and you can follow all the way through from Jeroboam to the last of the 19 kings, Hosea, and that's my fault for putting down their 20, it's 19 in the north, but... um, The nine different dynasties, meaning they came from different families because they kept murdering each other. There was never one, but all of them followed, or it says, did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. In other words, this guy's leadership affected the next 200 years of corruption in his country because he taught his son how to rebel, and his son taught his son how to rebel. And even though his son was murdered, the next dynasty followed in the leadership of Jeroboam who had the understanding and thinking, we cannot go back and worship God the way God wants us to worship because that would mean that we would worship underneath his Davidic king and that would cost us our power. And so this phrase, and it would be a good little exercise for you as you read through 1 Kings, is watch how many times it shows up that they followed the wickedness of Jeroboam or they did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. Folks, what I want to tell you is that Jeroboam was a mentor, a leader, if you will, a parent to this infant nation called Israel. 
And his leadership had incredible consequences in his negativity, and so will yours. Parenting is a big, big deal. In fact, it's such a big deal that God says that anybody who doesn't do a good job in parenting, and if you flip the page over there, you'll see this little verse, Luke 17, 1 through 2. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It says it would be better if he ran into Sammy the bull and he died a mafiosa's death. That's what Jesus said. Then for him to lead one of these little ones astray or to cause one of these little ones to stumble. See, here's the reality. There is no question that a child's earliest images, his earliest convictions, his earliest ideas about authority in general and about God specifically are formed by their relationship with you. Now, none of us like to be misunderstood. But one of the things you're going to see right here when Jesus communicates to you is he is especially jealous for his name. And he does not like the fact that he would be wrongly represented by the way that you are not an unconditional lover, a servant leader in your position of authority, one who acts in the best interest of that child, one who models humility and love and tenderness and dependence upon the Holy Spirit before that child. And he said, if you're an individual that takes that child and you feed his corrupt nature and make it easier for him to run from me, I've got a real issue with that. And it's better for you that you cross John Gotti than that you cross me. Are you overwhelmed yet? You ought to be. Look at this in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 6. It says this. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God. This is basically... Uh, the Ten Commandments right here. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven or above in the earth, beneath or in the water under the earth. You won't worship them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Do not give what is due me to anybody else. Don't misrepresent me to anybody else. And then he says this, I will visit the sin of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, this is a a verse that I want to bring up because right away people go, what does that mean? If I am an idiot, if I'm a rebel, if I'm somebody who's got issues in my life, and we all do, and we're going to encourage you to be very serious about the way that you address them this weekend, but we've all got our issues. And the question is, have you got to go back and figure out which one of your grandmothers saw a psychic? Have you got to go back and figure out which one of them played with a Ouija board? Have you got to find the magic prayer to expel the demon of tarot cards from your life because that's why there's sickness and rebellion and wickedness in your family lineage because you are being visited by this curse that is on your family. That is one of the two interpretations that people have for this verse. It has never been one that has been embraced by the church, but it's one that's reintroduced about every 10 years. Neil Anderson most recently did it in his book, The Bondage Breaker, and most famously did it. And it is error. It is heresy. If that was true of what God intended for us to know in Scripture, it would be, as a friend of mine said, megalithic. It would be all over the Bible that that is exactly what the Scriptures talk about. There are a few times where God says, look, I'm going to judge individuals, and there will be a history of judgment on a group of folks, but that's not what's going on in this verse. What he is saying right here is in his grace, he is going to limit the ability of any one individual to pervert individuals after him. In other words, you specifically are going to get a chance to do that for about 70 to 80 years, three to four generations. You figure generations about 20 years, and that's about the time that grandpa, even if he's still living, isn't going to have much impact anymore. 
after he hits 80 in terms of influencing the next generation of kids that are being born into him. But I will tell you this, for a long time, Grandpa Ken make a big dent on how that family operates because specifically Grandpa has the biggest effect on Dad. And Dad's going to have the biggest effect on Grandson. And so if Grandson does not break the chain of racism, of anger, of alcoholism, of viewing women as objects and not something to be honored and loved, then that's going to continue. But it's going to start over with every individual. And every individual is going to only have the opportunity to personally influence negatively for 70 to 80 years. And then God says, if I don't remove you before that, I'm definitely going to remove you about then. Now let me just show you what this really means. All God is saying in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 6, is you can screw it up for about 80 years. But I'm going to make sure that I continue the line of righteousness and grace through thousands of generations, which is a, a, almost a hyperbolic way of saying, hey, grace will always prevail. Grace will always reign. There will always be a remnant of those that will experience the goodness of knowing me as a father. But let me just tell you, you don't want to be one of those folks that has 70 to 80 years of wake of destruction, disaster, and improper response behind you. It'd be better for you that you offend Sammy the Bull then you become that individual. First uh, Corinthians 15.33 says this. It says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And so if you're around a guy that is a racist, you're going to grow up in a home where you learn to think of people in terms of their value only on the basis of their origin or their race or their creed. Um, Paul, throw up there Proverbs chapter 22 and 24 and 25 for me. Write that down. And here's another example. This is what the scripture says. It says, um, do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. See that again? He says, look, be careful who you associate with because who you associate with is going to have an impression on you. Um, Proverbs chapter 24 verse 21 says a very similar thing. But what God is saying is, look, your father is going to be an individual that you're going to have to associate with. And if anger is something that reigns in your home, you're going to learn to be hot-tempered yourself, and it will not be well for you. My son, fear the Lord the King. Don't associate with those who are given to change. Because verse 22 comes along and says, For their calamity will rise suddenly, and who knows the ruin that comes from individuals like this. Don't associate with people that don't make a commitment and build a foundation that is right and solid and true and erect who they are on it. This is one of the reasons I tell folks all the time. If you're involved with a guy or a gal and they have not yet determined what their worldview is, who they're going to serve, who their God is, who their master is, you're crazy to try and build a life with them because they're given to change at any particular moment. They might move from thinking this is a good idea over here to thinking that's a good idea. It's another reason why I shared repeatedly with folks that premarital sex is such a great illustration of whether or not the person that you're entering into marriage with has any idea of how to rightly lead in your marriage. Because they've said, hey, I'm a believer. I want to build my life the way God tells me to build my life. I am yoked to Him. I have left every relationship or activity now because of my covenant commitment to Him. I will now cleave to Him. Meaning I'll evaluate everything I enter into my life by asking myself, will this allow me to become more like Christ? Or will it drive me away from Him? And if it'll drive me away from Him, I don't want anything to do with it. Because I want to be one with Christ. I want to be one with God. But if you've got a guy who says, well, I'll be one with God and I'll leave everything and adjust every relationship or activity and I won't enter things into my life 
that, won't, that will hurt my relationship with him unless it offends me or bothers me or goes against my senses or is too difficult for my flesh to surrender to. And then I'm going to find an area that I'm just going to say, yeah, it really isn't about my relationship with Jesus. It's really about me. Then I would just tell you the problem there isn't even sex. The problem there is that they're illustrating to you that they don't have a real foundation that they build the rest of their life on. Because God has clearly spoken to them about how you are to relate to one another in a courtship relationship. And if a guy says, look, yeah, I'm going to tell you I love God. Yeah, I tell you I want to serve God. But frankly, I'll serve God in areas that I want to serve God in and follow him when I want to follow him. That is not somebody that you should go into marriage with confidence who's going to build his house wisely. The scripture says in Proverbs 23, verse 3 and 4, by wisdom a house is built. By understanding it is established. By knowledge its rooms are filled with all pleasant and good things. And so if you've got an individual, uh, I said it was 23, 3, and 4. It must not have been. Uh, but um, I'll think of where it is. 24, 3, and 4 is I think where that is, Paul. I'm sorry. But uh, that, that verse says, look, if you've got a guy you're going to share your life with, you better make sure that that individual uh, knows what they're going to build. Because next thing you know, you'll be trying to build a life with them, and all of a sudden they've got some... Stuff from Home Depot over there, and they're going to start framing something over there and shooting off in a direction. You go, wait a minute, what are we building over there for? That's not in my blueprint. And they're going to say, well, it's what I want to build today. And it's going to cause isolation, separation, and corruption in your home. And so you want to make sure that you don't associate with people given to change. Because those are not people that you can trust and build a life with. All that Exodus 20 is saying is that God in His grace is going to limit the ability of one individual to screw up generations of individuals. But the reality is, is that unless the son breaks the chain, unless the grandson breaks the chain, they're going to, because they associate with an angry grandfather, an angry dad, be an angry dad themselves. You're that way because your parents were that way, and it's all you know. And that is why one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself if you grew up like most people in this room will say they did, in a home where they did not have a good parental relationship modeled for them, God is the father of the fatherless. And that is why his favorite name for himself in all of Scripture is Father. And he says, let me reparent you. Let me refather you. Let grace interrupt what is happening in your life. And let me show you how to walk in wisdom so that you can be an agent of blessing to your children and your children's children. And not somebody who is passing down rebellion and self-love and deceit. Psalm 127, a central verse if you're going to talk about this. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. In other words, if you don't get God establishing the blueprint for how you're going to parent, how you're going to operate in your home, you will ultimately corrupt your Israel. Unless the Lord gives you the design and you go by it, you're going to labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early. It's vain for you to retire late. It is vain for you to eat the bread of painful labors. You've got to be related to the Lord, for the Lord gives His beloved even in their sleep. And then he goes on to say, Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. And if you take something that God has given you as a gift from Him, the most precious thing that He can give you, an eternal being made in His image, that He's going to allow you to craft, shape, mold, and influence. And you see that kid as a hassle. You see that kid as an interruption. You see that kid as a burden. Or you see that kid as an object for your anger. 
or you see that kid as an object for your own vicarious success the second time around, if you abuse that gift, how do you think God feels about that? How do you feel when you give somebody a gift and they kick it around and don't treat it with a great deal of care? Especially a gift as precious as that. Makes you want to get that person's attention, doesn't it? Behold, children are a gift from the Lord. And how you treat that gift says a lot about what you think about the giver. The fact that you guys are here with us this next 24 hours says that you understand that God's given you an incredible gift. Or that sometime in the near future you are praying that God would open up your womb or allow another child to come under your sphere of influence where you can begin to give everything you've got to this incredible privilege, which is the gift of being a parent and shepherding this gift that God has given you. He goes on to say, The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies at the gate. Now let me just walk you through a few simple things that... We can learn right here from Psalm 127. First of all, if you just look at the first two parts of that little psalm, we know that work done independently from God is is futile. To try and do it on your own without God is a mistake. You must not expect that God is going to work without our laboring, but we must expect failure if we labor without God. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So you don't just sit back and go, God, I'm pushing to the church. I'm sending them to parachurch ministries. I'm going to get him a good mentor. No. Those are fine things, and we're going to talk tomorrow about how they're great supplements but never a substitute. You don't just say, God, I'm not going to do anything. You build this because I'll mess it up. He says, no, I want you to labor well. I'm going to teach you how to labor to build this child right. But you better do it in deep dependence upon me. I'm not going to give you three little bullet points that you can just snap your heels and say, I got it from here and go out. You're going to have to depend on me, abide with me, Take principles that I give you and wrestle with them and not do that in isolation and depend upon me increasingly and continually. And then as you build your house with me, I will build with you what you dream that you might build. An arrow. Let's make a few little simple observations here. It's a great way to study the scripture. When the scripture says something like, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. You just stop and ask yourself, well, let's talk about arrows for a minute. And let's just draw out some basic principles and applications. I'll do it very quickly for you. First of all, an arrow by itself is useless. It is helpless. An arrow in and of itself is not going to do very much. It will sit there in the ground. You can maybe trip over it, but it's not going to at all perform like it should. We get upset a lot of times when we see the youth of today, don't we? We go, what's up with the kids that are in America today? What's going on with them? Why are they the way they are? Don't, why don't they have the respect and the dignity and the, and the hard work ethic that we think we did when we were their age? But here's the reality. All those kids are is what they will be if they're left alone by those that should direct those arrows the way that they should go. Let me say it to you this way, to use a popular phrase that's more popular with some in our culture than others. Simply this. Guns don't kill people. The problem isn't guns. People kill people. And that's just the frank reality. You put a gun in your house, you can leave it loaded. And if it's laying there and no one touches it, that thing's not going to hurt anybody. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Children are not the problem. Society's inability to shepherd, to lead, to love, to model, to protect, 
to provide and to prepare those arrows is the problem. And so the next time you're disgusted when you see the way America's youth are dressing, the next time you're disgusted when you see the attitudes, the apathy in America's youth and youth around the world, realize this, that an arrow by itself is helpless. What those arrows are doing is they're just being fired in the direction that we're holding them up or the direction that we're letting them go. It is the one who uses the arrow that determines its greatness or its worthlessness, you might add next to that. An arrow will go where you aim it. It's been well said. If you aim at nothing, what? You'll hit it every time. And the reason we've got so many kids that are aimless, so many kids that are angry, so many kids that are lost, so many kids that are full of despair, so many kids that are, are, are just waffling out there in the wind is because we're not aiming them at anything. And in fact, what we're telling them is there is nothing anywhere that they can reliably take as that which they should be aimed by. We are removing any basis of authority everywhere we can. And we're arguing that real truth is only determined by what you think works for you. And we're raising kids that are relativistic. We're teaching them that relativism is the greatest and tolerance is the greatest virtue. And so our kids are ending up lost and apathetic and despairing and angry just like we would if that's the world that we were raised in. I want to read something to you right here. This was written by a young woman um, in 1999. This is what she said. I am a member of the upcoming generation, the one after Generation X that is yet to be given a name. So far, it appears that most people are rallying behind the idea of calling us Generation Next. I believe I know why. The older generations are hoping that we will mindlessly assume our place as the next in line. That way, they won't have to explain why my generation has had to experience so much pain and heartache. What heartache, you say? Don't you know you've grown up in a time of great prosperity? Yeah, we know that. Believe me, it's been drilled into our heads since birth. Unfortunately, the pain and hurt I speak of can't be reconciled with money. You've tried for years to buy us happiness, but it is only temporary. Money isn't the answer, and it's time for people to begin admitting their guilt for failing my generation. I will admit that I wasn't planning on writing this. I was going to tuck it away in some corner of my mind and fall victim to your whole next mentality. But after the massacre in Littleton, Colorado, I realized that as a member of this generation that kills without remorse, I had a duty to challenge all of my elders to explain why they've allowed things to become so bad. Let me tell you this. These questions don't represent only me, but a whole generation that is struggling to grow up and make sense of this world. We all have questions. We all want explanations. People may level us generation next, but we are more appropriately titled Generation Y. Why did most of you lie when you made the vow of till death do us part? Why do you fool yourselves into believing that divorce really is better for the kids in the long run? Why do so many of you divorced parents spend more time with your new boyfriend or girlfriend than with your own children? Why did you ever fall victim to the notion that kids are just as well off being raised by a complete stranger to daycare center than by their own mother or father? Why do you look down on parents who decide to quit work and stay home to raise their children? Why does the television do most of the talking at our family meals? Why is work more important than your own family? Why is money regarded as more important than relationships? Why is quality time generally no longer than a five to ten minute conversation Maybe each week. Why do you try to make up for the lack of time you spend with us by giving us more and more material objects that we really don't need? Why does your work in the form of a cell phone, laptop, computer, etc. always come with us on vacations? Why have you neglected to teach us values and morals? Why haven't you lived moral lives that we could model our own after? Why isn't 
Christ, one of the most important words in our household. Why do you play God when it comes to abortion? Why don't you have enough faith in us to teach us abstinence rather than safe sex? Why do you allow us to watch violent movies but expect us to maintain some type of childlike innocence? Why do you allow us to spend an unlimited amount of time on the Internet but still are shocked about our knowledge of how to build bombs? Why are you so afraid to tell us no sometimes? Why is it so hard for you to realize that school shootings and other violent juvenile behaviors result from a lack of your attention more than anything else? Call us Generation Next if you want to, but I think you'll be surprised at how we will not fit into your neat little category. These questions should and will be asked to the generations that have failed us. You have pursued your selfish desires for years, but now is the time to reap what you have sown. Some rude awakenings like the Littleton Massacre have occurred and probably will continue until you can begin to answer our questions and make a drastic change to put us, your kids, first. Time's running out. For just a few short years, we will be grown, and it will be too late. You might not think that we are worth it, but I can guarantee you that Littleton will look like a drop in the bucket compared to what might occur when a neglected Generation Y comes to power. That's sobering, isn't it? It's written by a 19-year-old little girl down there in College Station in one of her little creative writing classes. And she said, you want to know what I'm going to talk about? I'm going to talk about what's boiling inside all of us. Why didn't somebody aim us? Why doesn't somebody give us direction?" Why doesn't somebody say they know what harbor we need to go to and so they teach us which wind to catch? Remember we said at the very beginning? This thing matters. It ought to overwhelm you what's at stake. What a nation honors, a nation becomes. Hosea 4, 6-9 you have right there in your little book. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my ministers, those that represent me to others. Since you've forgotten the law of your God, I'm going to forget your children. Do you see what God says? I'm going to go ahead and let you have the consequences of what you're sowing. And I'm going to let your kids go. And I'm going to let them run. And I'm going to let the pain of a godless child absolutely rock your world. Because if your own godlessness won't affect you, I'm going to let you see what happens in the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow, you reap what you sow later than you've sown it, and you reap more than you have sown. And if you think your rebellion has been tolerable, well, the next generation will take it just to another level. And they will offend you the way you have offended me. A nation becomes what a nation honors. And your child is going to become what you honor in your household. What do you honor? Beauty? Looks? Good personality, what do you honor? The ability to be popular, what do you honor? Athletic success, that's what your child will pursue. You want to do something that's going to help you as a parent? You go home and you ask your kids, I want you to write down what you think your daddy is most passionate about and see what they say. You go home and you ask your kids, what do you think your mother is most passionate about? And you see what your kids will say. And you'll get a good idea of how you're aiming your children. And if your children don't say, hey, I'll tell you what my mom and dad are most passionate about. They're most passionate about my character. They're most passionate about my learning to live in relationship with a God who loves me that my flesh wants to run from. They're most passionate about the way that I deal with error in my life and resolve conflict. They're most passionate about the way that I discipline myself for the purpose of godliness. My parents are most passionate about helping others who are far from God come into the grace relationship that they, by grace, have been introduced to. If your children don't say something in that general direction, then you better set down your bow, figure out where you've got it aimed, and point it in another direction. 
Because your children will become what you're feeding them. An arrow can provide life, it can provide food, it can provide protection, it can provide blessing, or it can provide great pain and destruction. Now what do I mean by that? We'll put those up there for you so you can see it. Life, food, protection, blessing. Put your own words in if you want. Or it can bring about great pain and destruction. It's the same with a gun, right? A gun can do all that. It can provide protection for us in our cities. It can provide life for us in the form of food. It can provide blessing for us in the form of abundance. Or it can be a cause of great pain and destruction. And I want to tell you something. Using the metaphor of Psalm 127, there is no pain like the pain of a misfired arrow. There is no pain like the pain of a godless child. Proverbs 10.1, it's right down there before you. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish son is grief to his mother. A wise son makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. A foolish son is a grief, Proverbs 17.25 says to his father, and bitterness to her who bore him. A foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are constant dripping. Let me just make it really clear to you. If you want to let your arrow go wherever it wants to go, you need to realize this. That quote from Abraham Lincoln that I wrote down there for you in the previous page, the philosophy of one generation of school children will become the philosophy of government in the next generation. That is why today we're struggling as a country, because our elected officials today are increasing the students of relativism and in self we trust. Socialistic ideas, enablement, indulgence. That's the law that reigns in their hearts because that is the way that they were raised. And the philosophy taught in our schools today is going to be the legislation that rolls out from our government tomorrow. Lincoln knew this hundreds of years ago. And that's why he was the man that is president spent a lot of time on his knees and fought and was concerned about what we were teaching our kids. You need to know this. You need to know that you are training your masters. Let me say that to you again. Do you know one of the reasons that a a wise son is a delight to a father? Because that wise son will one day rule over you in his strength. That wise son will one day lead you in your nation. And if you want your nation to be a place where peace and quietness and righteousness prevail, then you better train tomorrow's leader. Let me say it to you again. You are training your master. You are training your caregivers. You are writing your story. You are finishing your future in the way that you shepherd your kids. Do you understand that? And you're either bringing about incredible pain in your tomorrow by being negligent in your parenting, or you are doing everything you can to train up a child in the way that he should go so that when he is old, he will love you the way you want to be loved. A warrior, which is to say a parent, who leaves his arrows unattended, is inviting destruction upon himself and his people. A warrior is responsible for his arrows. A cop is responsible for his gun. You are responsible for your kids. Charles Manson, after he was prosecuted and Uh, interviewed one of his numerous times in jail, they said, how in the world did you get these people to follow you? You know what Manson said? Manson looked right into the camera and he said this. He goes, they were your children. And you abandoned them. And so I took them in. In other words, you didn't love them. You didn't invest in them. You were too busy with your games, your career, 
They were an interruption to you. They weren't a gift. They weren't a treasure. They weren't a blessing. They weren't a valuable possession to aim and steer correctly. You, you abandoned them. And they were looking for somebody who could provide some authority and some love, even if it was a perverted love and a corrupt authority. They were your children, and you abandoned them. So I took them in. And these children that were supposed to be a great source of blessing brought about horrors in our country that are still talked about today. Arrows are a warrior's responsibility while he has them. But once he lets them go, and by the way, they are useless until you let them go, it is too late for that warrior, for that parent to be involved in changing their course. Now, sovereignty might change it. Grace might interrupt but you shouldn't count on it.